The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Valdana Hayrick, a markets reporter at Bloomberg. And I'm Emily Grafeo, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. Mike Regan is out this week. And this week on the show, are stocks in a new bull market or not? There's a raging debate on Wall Street as both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100 continue to surge. We'll get into it with the chief global strategist for a major asset manager. But first, Emily, welcome back to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Mike Regan. Um, On last week's show, Katie filled in and she told us one of her deepest, darkest secrets, which is what she's very, very deathly afraid of. The dark. The dark. So that can't be your answer to. This isn't really a secret, but I'm very afraid of birds. Flying birds, out of control birds. How do you live life? So it's when I went to a conference a few months ago in Miami for ETFs. I was having a business lunch with a source and I was trying to be really serious and professional and there was a (laughs) bird and it kept flying towards us and I was being really spastic (laughs) and freaking out. But the source was very kind about it and he would shoo it off. But I don't get it though because there's so many birds everywhere. The New York City pigeons are different. Harmless. They mind their own business. It's it's other birds. I see. Yeah. I don't see. (laughs) Our guest this week is laughing. (laughs) So I do want to bring her in. It's Seema Shah, Chief Global Strategist for Principal Asset Management. Seema, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we have you here in person, which is really great. Yeah, it's fun to be here, although it's just 24 hours. Maybe let's just start with some of your views on what you're expecting from the economy and from markets. You said that a recession is not imminent, but you're still forecasting one. So Maybe just tell us about your projections. Yeah, so we are still expecting a recession. We're maybe increasingly in the minority and actually expecting a full recession to come through. But we are expecting it starting Q4. I know a lot of people out there who are expecting recession expect it to come in Q3. I look at the labor market, the strength of it, and I say that that's almost impossible. But Q4, we would expect fairly mild negative growth. And then in Q1, a deeper downturn. But then by Q2, this is back to recovery. So this is historically a very short recession and historically a very, very mild recession. So unlike some strategists on the street that have been pushing out their expectations for when this recession is finally going to get here, it seems like for a while you have been thinking that it's not going to come. It's not going to be an imminent recession. How has your view, though, shifted from the beginning of the year to now? Yeah, so we have had this expectation for recession in the second half of 2023 since the early part of 2022. So this is a long-held view for recession and really based on this idea of the long and variable lags, all based around Fed policy is going to trigger recession. But since the beginning of this year, I should actually, even in the last two or three months, with this continued outperformance strength of the labor market, 
the one thing that we have changed is that we have reduced the duration of recession from three quarters to two quarters. I almost wonder if this is even going to feel like a recession. You know, if you look around, are you going to say, wow, the US is recession? Probably not because it's that mild. So I think maybe the more important part of this, at least from a asset allocation perspective, is what the impact on earnings is going to be. And you can already see in that downward trend, you get into recession, earnings will continue to come down. And that's really what's going to weigh on asset prices. But certainly, if you look at the labor market and what we're expecting, I mean, we're projecting unemployment to rise to 4.1% by year end. That is still essentially full employment. So it's not, I don't think, going to be a very, very tough recession for, for the population. Okay, but that's super interesting, the thing you said about, is it going to feel like a recession? So what will it feel like for the everyday American? I wonder if it's going to feel any different to when, you know, almost over the last year with living costs being quite oppressive, maybe you find out more and more people around you are losing their jobs, but then that will be very much of a rolling recession. I mean, I do buy into this idea that some sectors will continue to be very strong, other sectors will be really feeling the pain and almost a continuation of what you've seen since the, actually since last year when housing was struggling, now it's manufacturing, energy is struggling, at least on the earnings side. And you're probably going to see rolling sectors which are struggling, but maybe just a few more of them are feeling the effects by year end. What does that mean for what it's going to feel like for investors, equity investors? Well, as we've seen already, I mean, for equity investors, it's, in, it's confusing now. It's probably going to become even more confusing and it becomes a very, very important case of you have to pick your sector very wisely. You have to think about your styles very carefully as well. And just having a blanket view of the broad equity market is simply not going to be enough. I want to make the plug for active management. I mean, this is really the environment that active management should start to thrive when you have specific sectors which are struggling. And can you say more about what's behind your calculation for your projections? Is it that you're just thinking about how strong the labor market is or are there other factors at play too? Yeah, so there's a couple of things at play. So I mean, one of the reasons that we expect this to be fairly mild and actually not coming through, in fact, till, you know, towards the end of this year is back to that consumer, back to that excess savings story. I think we are all very familiar with that story. But I think at some point last year, there was an expectation that at least for some of the households, uh, lower income households, excess savings had been completely exhausted already. But if you look at the data now, I mean, we've just done a kind of a, a rejuvenation of those numbers, and it looks like there's still half a trillion to go. And that should sustain households at least until year end, potentially even longer if they start to change their behavior a little bit. So that is what really continues to support the, the broader economy. The thing is with the labor market is it is very tight today, but it is typically the most lagging indicator of any recession. So it stays strong, it stays strong, and then suddenly it drops, and then it spirals fairly quickly. So although it looks good today, it doesn't mean it's going to stay like this forever, which I think a lot of people are making that mistake. So we are anticipating Q4 is when you start to see job losses. And it does spiral. You've also seen that actually the, the interest rate sensitivity of the US economy is considerably lower than it was previously, partly because actually debt levels for consumers, households, businesses is lower than in previous times. So those are the, the kind of the key factors which are driving this not imminent recession, but also mild recession. That was really interesting in your note about the interest rate sensitivity. Could you talk a little bit more about why in this current cycle we're a little bit less sensitive to higher interest rates than prior downturns? Yeah, so one, one of the interesting things, and I say this coming from the UK, where actually interest rate sensitivity there is, is a lot higher than the U.S., and one of the reasons is, is back to the housing market and back to mortgages. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, 
you have a majority of mortgages are on the variable rate side, right? So as rates have gone up, people have really started to see their mortgage costs, their affordability can fall. Whereas in the US, there's a greater percentage of fixed rate mortgages. So the implication is, is that people just simply don't feel that pain of these Fed rate hikes, which have been incredibly aggressive. But if you're not feeling it, then actually it almost doesn't exist. So that's one thing. And then once you start to look at the corporate debt imbalances, they are lower than what you've seen, certainly during the GFC, but also during previous recessions. So as interest rates rise, that debt servicing cost is not as oppressive as maybe it had been in previous times. So that is really the key reason. And I think that has actually been a process of, I guess, of understanding for for a lot of economists out there that history, of course, we look to it as a guide, but it cannot be the rule for as we look forward. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for the FOMC meeting next week? If we get another rate hike, does it even matter that much? It's a very good point. I, I would say, look, once you're getting into just additional 25 bips, no, no, I don't think it, it's, it's a thing that's, it's not like it's, it's going to suddenly push the economy over. I think the interesting part of that 25 basis point hike is the implications for market expectations. And that's really where you're seeing liquidity conditions, or so I should say financial conditions have been very easy, actually have eased, in fact, over the last couple of months because markets have been so certain that the Fed is going to stop hiking, that there's going to be rate cuts. But once you start to introduce another rate hike, well, potentially that could reverse a lot of this easing in financial conditions. And alongside that increase in rate hike, potentially in June, potentially in July, alongside that, you should see a continued pricing out of rate cuts. And if I think about the the broad equity market, one of the reasons I think why there is some optimism still is just this idea that the Fed will come to the rescue. So the more and more they intervene, then I think the less that becomes the truth. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Okay, before we talk more about what you're expecting down the line, what do you think we do get from the Fed? Because the market is anticipating they'll pause in June, potentially hike in July. What do you foresee happening? So we have had a forecast, I think since last October, when Powell had come out with a fairly hawkish commentary, that the Fed would peak at 5.25 to 5.50, right? So that for us means that there is a, it's one more rate hike. I would have said June, certainly looking at the labor market data from, from April, certainly there is another rate hike to come. But just going by the commentary, the kind of words that are coming out from so many of the FOMC members, 
they are very reluctant and quite rightly so in wanting to look for the evidence of economic slowdown. You know, we talk about those long and variable lags. Well, that means that they need to take the time to see how the economy is responding to the hike so far. So I think from that perspective, it's more likely that they stop in June and then they start again in July. The one thing that concerns me, though, to be honest, is this is now becoming another consensus forecast for one more rate hike. When there's a consensus, there's always a little bit of a concern around it, because if you do get a continuation of hikes, maybe another one in September, that is where you start to see some negative surprises. And when you've got a market which is doing so well, that is where the risks really come from. What is behind the June pause? Is it also some of the banking sector turmoil that we've seen that they are really needing to still figure out and think about? Yeah, absolutely. So as well as, as you said, you know, as well as just looking at the the broader economy, how is the unemployment rate and how is, of course, how is inflation behaving? One of the key things that we've heard the FOMC talk about repeatedly over the last couple of months is what the impact of the banking crisis is going to be. And the difficulty with the banking crisis is it's actually a lot of it is down to behavioral, behavioral economics, almost how do people respond, how do businesses respond and how do banks respond? It's one of those things that's very, very difficult to model for us, but also for the Fed too. So they are having to track the data and see how lending behavior is continuing. Up till this point, actually, it's been fairly healthy. So that shouldn't really stand in their way. But I think they are looking for as much evidence as they can gather before they do a hike, which, you know, could really unsettle financial markets. What about inflation? There's a lot of people that doubt we can get to the 2% target for quite some time. Do you think the Fed would ever redefine the 2% target? Well, first thing is, is they cannot redefine a 2% target until they've hit 2%, because otherwise they lose complete credibility. So would they do it this year? Absolutely not, because I am certainly in the camp that they cannot hit 2% in 2023. If you get a recession, well, that's probably going to be your process, which brings it down to 2%. And then maybe at that point, they can say, right, Looking at the broader set of features, looking at the next 10 years, all the various structural secular inflationary forces, maybe we want to shift it maybe a little bit more flexible, 25 to 3%. But certainly until they've hit 2%, I think that they really risk losing credibility. We've had a slew of strategists come out in the last couple of weeks, and they've been upping their S&P targets. Obviously, the market's been rallying quite a bit, tech stocks and the broader market as well. But what do you foresee? It sounds like you would foresee a, a very choppy path for stocks through the end of the year. Well, so this is where I think the picture becomes extremely confusing because this recession forecast, and even if you don't expect recession, but you just anticipate slowdown, that should suggest that the S&P 500 is going to be under downward pressure, right? The broad equity market is under downward pressure. That makes sense. But then you throw in the tech side and actually everything goes completely out the window because the math doesn't just doesn't add up. So if you believe in the strength of AI, and certainly maybe there's a bit of froth in the market, but if you believe that AI can continue to push tech companies forward, it's actually very difficult to see how you get the S&P 500 back below 4,000 and certainly down to the the previous September, October lows. So I think that has been one of the reasons why you have seen so many strategists upping their S&P 500 forecasts, just because of the tech, the math just doesn't add up. Certainly for us, we are believers in the tech story. Last year, we were in underweight because of the Fed hiking cycle. February this year, we raised our exposure, mainly for cyclical reasons. Timely. Very timely. I, I, I can't pretend to have known that NVIDIA would do what it's doing. <laughs> but certainly, we had a cyclical view on it in terms of there's a slowdown coming. 
the Fed is nearing the end of its hiking path and the broader global economy is going to do better than the US and typically large cap has a greater international revenue exposure than the middle small caps. So that was the reason why we went overweight there in February. But now you've got, of course, this amazing secular discussion around, around AI and the potential profits for the sector. And it's, I have to say, I think it's very difficult to see this completely collapse back to what it was last year. What is the bull case on AI? Is it that companies have a bunch of cash on their balance sheets and they're going to be spending it towards AI developments? Or is it, and I've seen this slightly gloomier view, which is that people are thinking about AI as replacing a lot of jobs. So they're jumping into the market because they want to at least take advantage of the market upside. They want to be part of the rally, even if it means that AI is, you know, potentially displacing tons of jobs. Yeah, AI could be the emotional hedge. So I think it's a little bit of both, right? I, I think the the rationale for having that, especially to, to companies which are investing in AI, is, you know, I think it's it's not just like you had in the dot-com boom. I think it's almost a, a fundamental change in, and I guess that the way people live their lives, do business, is that AI is probably something which is here to stay. It's not like the metaverse, right? This is something which is a lot more meaningful. And these companies have the cash on their balance sheets. They don't have the same kind of leverage. They have the brand. I mean, there's so many reasons to have a positive view for AI. But I also, I mean, one of my lingering concerns for the broader market is, you know, one of the consensus views is that the next 10 years is going to be a lot more inflationary than the past 10 years. And that people point to deglobalization, aging, the shift to green energy. But what about AI? I mean, AI and the potential job loss, and we've already heard from places like IBM in the United Kingdom, we heard from British Telecom, which is saying that they could, I think, cut almost like a third of their workforce within the next few years. That is deflationary. And that could potentially turn that whole discussion of the next 10 years and how you really want to invest from it as a strategic perspective upside down. But at least for the near term, I think AI technology, you, you need to have some kind of exposure to that in your portfolios. How resilient are these AI-linked stocks for the next six months from, you know, an impending recession and earnings downturn? I think they are fairly resilient to the broader economic story, simply because they are typically the companies that should thrive when things get a little more challenging. It's not like they're going to completely avoid the, the downflow that you see for the broader economy, but I would expect them to outperform. The reason I'm hesitating is because there is clearly a little froth in the market. You know, valuations have just gone to extreme levels. We would anticipate that there's going to be a bit of a pullback. Once you get that pullback, increase your exposure, because I think this is a long-term trade. But I do think that maybe the next six months could be very, very choppy for a lot of things in the market. The other thing is, is that if you don't see a pullback in the market, at least pullback in the AI side, does it drag the rest of the market up with it? Do you get this kind of melt up, this momentum, this improved investor sentiment? And I think that would be dangerous because all that happens then is that you get liquidity financial conditions continuing to ease. You get a new rebirth of inflation, kind of like what you saw in the 1970s. You got new Fed hikes to come and then you essentially get a deeper downturn. So from a recession standpoint, you want to get out this way sooner. The later it comes, the deeper it's going to be. I'm really interested in your super long-term view which is you're expecting lower returns and higher volatility. I think over the next decade, maybe we can say, like, can you talk about that very long-term view? So if we think about the last 10 years, 
you've had an environment of very low volatility and high rates. And one of the key reasons for that was because it was a low rate environment. You had low inflation. You had central banks, not just the Fed, but around the world, keeping liquidity conditions extremely easy. And as a result, if you're an, if you're an investor, um, it wasn't too hard to make a positive return in your portfolio. But now if you look at the next 10 years, and for the reasons of deglobalization, um, aging society, shift over to green energy, uh, you're probably looking at a time where inflation is going to be, I mean, not meaningfully higher than what you've had over the last 10 years. But maybe if you think that for the US, inflation has averaged about 1.2% over the last 10-year period, maybe it goes up to about 25 to 3% over the next 10 years. That is an environment where you are moving away from quantitative easing, so you haven't got zero rate environment anymore. And, and as long as you have that and it's actually um, more expensive for companies, well, then you need to make harder decisions. You need to have better analysis. But ultimately, that is an environment where you have lower returns and higher volatility. Uh, you need to be a little bit more exotic, I think, in terms of how you're thinking about investing. Can you just stick to the traditional asset classes or do you need to start thinking a little bit outside of the box? Uh, so I think that the next 10 years is going to be harder, but potentially more interesting as well. I like that word exotic. What's your highest conviction exotic uh, <laughs> bet <laughs> for the long term? Yeah, okay. Now, this is not going to sound exotic at all, but... <laughs> treasury bills. Yeah, treasury bills. <laughs> Cash. You know, if you want to get any kind of strong returns in your portfolio beyond, beyond, I think, certainly what you can make on any kind of traditional equities, public equities, public fixed income, then you have to start considering about considering privates. And ideally, you want to combine two things together. That's emerging markets and privates. And I think there is a lot of potential there, but you have to look beyond the next year or so because there will, I think, be a lot of cyclical concerns as maybe the public weakness catches up with the private, catches up for the private market. Uh, but then if you're taking a 10-year perspective, don't you want to have a position in some newfound companies which are going to be benefiting from a growing middle class, a catch-up economy, and ideally based something on technology? your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Well, I was going to ask you to give us your overview of what you are seeing internationally as well and maybe what areas you're concerned about or what you are currently liking. So at the moment, we have had, I think, a generally constructive view on China. We are disappointed, of course, 
by the economic story in the last couple of months is really has been quite disappointing. And yet, if you look out over a longer term perspective, again, maybe the next six months are tough, but if you're looking out maybe over two, three, and obviously a longer term horizon, I actually think the China story is quite a constructive one again. And the reason is, is that what we've learned from the Chinese government over, I think the last five years, but it's kind of gone a little bit behind the scenes because of COVID and the various lockdowns, is that they are aiming for a more stable economy. They don't want to have the boom-bust cycle. They don't want to have an economy which is addicted to leverage. And as a result, their stimulus policies are not going to be driving incredible growth rates and then sharp drops. So we are not anticipating very significant stimulus in the second half of this year. This is a government which is aiming for fairly stable and I guess a little bit boring growth. But the benefit for an investor over the next, over a year, longer term horizon is that this is a more stable economy, which avoids a lot of the pitfalls that I think investors have fallen into previous years. So we do like China, I guess, from a longer term perspective. Well, Seema Shah, Chief Global Strategist for Principal Asset Management, we want to thank you for coming in, but you're not free to go yet. (laughs) I call this the taking our guests for hostage part of the show because we're going to be playing some games. I think. Games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a game for us. Tic-tac-toe. Yes. But first, I, I think both of you have come very well prepared for craziest things we saw in markets. So, Emily, I'll have you go first. Okay. So, the relatively new Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, is cutting a number of projects, side projects that Amazon during the Jeff Bezos era came up with. Bloomberg had an article last week about 37 of the projects that they have cut over the last few years. The craziest one I saw was Amazon Books. It was a physical bookstore by Amazon. Oh, I think I remember this. So they closed this last year. So I'm a little late to it, but I didn't see it until the article last week. But how ironic is that? That so Amazon, were there any actual physical bookstores they or they tw- were just planning? They had 24 physical bookstores oh. <laughs> and then closed them down. Were any of them in New York? I'm not sure about that. I know one was in Seattle, I believe. I think that was the first one. I've still never been to one of those stores where you just grab stuff and leave. You just steal it and then walk Yeah, you out. just steal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that what you do? <laughs> just bring a big bag. And <laughs> I don't think I've ever been in one of those either. There's one across the street from us, actually, from the office, and I've never been. We should go. Seema, what about you? Okay, so this one is maybe it's a little bit concerning, I think. So we know that Europe is ahead, I think, with regards to the ESG discussion. Maybe it's taken a bit of a back foot in the US. But so recently, and I saw this on the Bloomberg Terminal, it was, I did a bit of a double take when I saw this and ended up clicking on it. And it turns out that one of the German states, actually one of the richest states, has decided that under its new ESG legislation, they are putting U.S. treasuries on the investing blacklist. Oh. Because of America's failure to ratify a number of treaties and things like women's rights, controversial weapons, and probably down to the ESG perspective. Which state was it? I wish I could pronounce it. Now you're putting me on the spot. This Uh, is why I did, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Baden-Württemberg with an English accent that's really interesting I think Seamus is better than yours sorry <laughs> no, I, I liked mine it was a ironic business you know business is coming full mm-hmm. circle mm-hmm. okay it's time to play the price is precise 
which I have such a hard time pronouncing. The rules are exactly the same as a little game called The Price is Right, but we can't call it that. <laughs> so we call it The Price is Precise. Okay, we all know Taylor Swift has been on tour for a couple months now. I didn't get tickets. Super hard to get. Did you get tickets? You're not a big Taylor Swift fan. But I want to play, I want to ask both of you to guess how much she, the concert is expected to gross and then how much she of that gross amount actually gets to keep. Emily, you go first. Oh my gosh. I have no idea. The whole, like the whole tour or one single concert? The whole tour. Crickets. I don't know. 500 million and then how much she makes? How much she keeps? 50 million. Seema. So I should do what I used to do with my brother, just go like one dollar higher. Yeah. <laughs> or no, if you go over, then you lose. Oh, you go, you lose. You're supposed to go one dollar lower, I think. But what if it's more like seven? Unless you're million? super sure. Ah, now you've made it more complicated. <laughs> I'm re-strategizing everything with my brother over the years. Um, okay, I'm going to go with 450 million. And I reckon she makes more of it because didn't Taylor Swift take back control over all of her, her records? So I'm going to say she made like 50%. That's aggressive. Maybe 30%. Is she a big deal in the UK? Oh, yes. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Alexa is, is very much accustomed to playing Taylor Swift. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> For you, I right? hope she gets a lot. For you, right? <laughs> yeah, for my daughter. <laughs> okay, you were both actually very close. It's expected to grow $620 million. I tricked you a little. You did. Sorry. I could have won. I had, to, I, I had to spice it up a little. You helped me a lot. However, she's keeping $500 million of it. Oh, wow. Good for her. But you guessed $10 billion at first. I, it's early <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> $10 billion? Well, I know some people have been paying a lot for the tickets. $10 billion? <laughs> <laughs> oh was Katie God. last week was saying the ice cream was going to cost yes. like five hundred thousand dollars? Yeah, first cup of ice cream. <laughs> oh my God! Okay, Seema, thank you so much for coming in. It's been great to have you oh, thank have you, so you back much. on, and actually see you in person too. Thank you very much. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.